This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Poetry on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zimbalan, and I'm here with Amy Berkowitz, the author of Tender Points and Gravitas, which is the collection we'll be discussing today. Amy is also working on a novel that she likes to call Untitled Bisexual Jumpsuits Project. She lives in San Francisco, where she co-hosts the Light Jacket Reading Series. Thanks for joining me, Amy. Oh, thanks so much for the invitation. So Gravitas examines the tendency of MFA programs to teach women that their lives aren't worth writing about. These poems bear witness not only to alienation, but also to the bittersweet joy of being forced to invent alternative ways of living and writing. It's a collaborative and direct book, and it hurt my feelings a few, a few instances reflecting on my own experience in grad school. Oh no. Um, I mean, in, in totally the expected ways. Um, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about the genesis of this book. Sure. Um, I mean, the genesis of this book is that I lived through the experience that necessitated writing it. Um, uh, how do I sum it up? You know, I, I went to this graduate program for my MFA, a very prestigious program. And I got there and the only feedback I got was that my poems lacked gravitas. And I I just didn't know what to do with that. You know, I was writing about my life. Like, where do I find gravitas? And I asked my professors this and there was no helpful answer. Um, And the other thing that made the program a pretty difficult place to be was that um, one of the professors, I was in the poetry side of the creative writing department, but one of the professors in the fiction side was just like blatantly uh, harassing and assaulting fiction students. And so it never happened to me. I was a poetry student, but I knew this was going on. And I knew all of my poetry professors like just weren't doing anything to stop him. They wouldn't even say anything critical about him. They would just kind of like joke, oh, that's our guy. Um, And so being there was very hard, especially uh, for me, because um, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I actually had just recalled um, that abuse the year before starting the program. 
Um, and so <laughs> I swear I'm answering your question. So the genesis of the book um, was that I endured that and my uh, classmates endured that. And then more than 10 years later, I was at um, a really wonderful writing residency at the Anderson Center at Tower View in Red Wing, Minnesota. Um, apply to it if you're thinking of going to a residency. And I had a lot of time on my hands because I was waiting to get some edits back from the friend. Uh, so I was on the phone with another friend and we were just like chatting about grad school. She had gone to school with me and I was for some reason, like asking her, you know, why was I always being scolded about lacking gravitas? And she was like, pointed out that there was a connection between my professors thinking that my life as a young woman didn't have enough value to write about. And um, the other thing, which was those same professors uh, looking at our lives as young women and seeing that they weren't worth protecting against this harm that was being perpetrated against them. And I'd never recognized that connection before. And after we hung up the phone, um, without like getting up, I was sitting on my bed in my room there. I just opened my laptop and I, I wrote, um, it, was, it was actually in the form of an essay, which is something else we can talk about. But I just wrote like all of the thoughts that would become gravitas. And so that's where it started. Absolutely. Thinking about the tension between poetry and prose in your writing life specifically is something that I think is really interesting. Um, but I wonder if we can start by looking at the poems. Um, in Gravitas to Fresh Blood, you talk about the relationship between chronic pain and grad school and this recollection of trauma that prompts you to apply to grad school um, as a sort of career trajectory. How can I have money to figure out what my career is going to be. I can apply to these fully funded MFA programs, but there's also this loss of life that's experienced in the poems while in grad school. Um, in Gravitas One, you write, I graduated feeling so far away from the poetry I used to live. I mean, love, no, let the typo stay. So over the course of time that's since elapsed, how has your relationship with poetry shifted? Um, which I guess is a way of asking what did this book, both the process of writing it and talking through it, and then of publishing it and making it public, excise or change or generally do to your relationship with poetry in the wake of this experience at the MFA? Oh my God, I feel like there's like 19 or 20 questions in there. Um, where do I even start? Because um, I feel like I could respond to the choice well let me sort of I just want to like speak to your observations about those poems which I think are interesting and then I might ask you to remind me of the the part of the question that you really seem to be focused on um but uh yeah so yeah going to grad school like I loved writing poetry you know I like I say I loved it um and so going to an MFA program made sense, you know, but the real reason I applied was because I had just had this onset of this chronic, uh, chronic pain, chronic fatigue symptoms, which were diagnosed as fibromyalgia. Um, and I couldn't do my job. I had to stop working at my job. Um, I wasn't uh, approved for 
to get on disability because it's quite hard to do that with fibromyalgia. Um, and so I just really applied to grad school because I needed something to do that would let me earn enough money to live. I just think that's worth kind of spelling out because that's a pretty dire and specific situation. So I didn't have, you know, I thought it would be a cool experience and I'd learn how to write better, but I didn't have like particularly high expectations for the program. Like I, I really had trouble connecting with, uh, any of the faculty at any of the programs I was looking at. Um, it, it all kind of seemed to be uh, less, less like conversational and lively than the poetry that I enjoyed and the poetry that I was writing. Like my favorite poet at the time was C.A. Conrad, um, you know, who, who's very uh, inventive and down to earth and especially at the time was writing these very uh, just mischievous and lightly mystical and conversational poems about life and sex and stuff. And I couldn't find an MFA program with a professor like that. So, you know, I didn't think it was going to be like the most amazing fit, but those were my expectations going in. And I thought, um, I was very struck when you said loss of life, because that almost sounds like somebody died. But um, I do think that uh, the, my, my love for poetry kind of died. I think that was the victim there. Um, but to answer your question about what's happening more recently, am I right to say that your question was about how my relationship of, uh, with poetry has changed since writing and sharing the book? Yeah. What's um, been, I guess, revealed or opened or, or I mean, has it been, Cathartic, I guess, is a, is a way of asking that question, too. Yeah, it's been totally cathartic. Um, it's been a really good experience. It's been really especially great to hear feedback from people who have had a strong reaction to it um, because they've gone through something similar. I mean, one of the poems in the book is very short, and it's just... Um, what's it called? It's called The Size of the Problem. And it's uh, whenever I tell people about the abuser or whatever, the professor in our program, more often than not, they say, yeah, we had a guy like that. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's really, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just that people, that's literally what people say. Yeah. Um, and so I think especially like one thing that really like, I found like deeply gratifying is that um, one of the messages I've got from a reader recently was a young woman who said that she, after her grad program, because she'd had kind of a similar experience, had just totally stopped writing and reading Gravitas was the one thing that had made her start again. So it's had this absolutely like communal effect on people being able to speak a certain truth about MFA programs that gets possibly buried. I was struck by this interlude in one of the poems about um, naming the MFA program, not by its institution directly, but saying that it's prestigious. Um, and, and, and that it is, it does feel in that very academic way, important to point that out, that it's a, an, an academic program with a reputation. Um, and what that reputation is, is complicated uh, and, and shared by other programs too. this, 
the size of the problem absolutely feels indicative of something. Um, I guess I wondered, I mean, there's so many questions that I have about this book, but I wonder if it's, if it would be, if it would make sense to read one of the poems and start there, um, maybe with Gravitas for Chopping Wood. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I keep like having so much I want to say. There's so much to say. (laughs) Um, In reaction to your like thoughtful words to me. And I just want to say like, I had an idea for a t-shirt while you were speaking a moment ago, which could be like, I went to the number two MFA program in the country (laughs) and all I got was this lousy PTSD. (laughs) And all I got was a dead relationship with poetry. (laughs) Totally, totally. Um, Which one should I read? Uh, Gravitas for Chopping Wood. Yeah, that's, that is the heart of the book. Like if I had to sum it up in one poem, that's the one. Okay, so Chopping Wood. The word is so heavy with significance for me that I've never bothered to look it up. So here we go. Gravitas, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is defined as dignity, seriousness, or solemnity of manner. The Collins Dictionary elaborates, if you say that someone has gravitas, you mean that you respect them because they seem serious and intelligent. Your poems lack gravitas. I don't remember which professor said it first, but that criticism followed me from class to class. I don't remember getting helpful feedback. I was prodded to up the gravitas, and sometimes my stylistic choices were called into question. I remember being told that a poem that started every line with and was too repetitive. No professor ever asked me, what are your influences? No professor ever asked me, what are you trying to accomplish with these poems? No professor ever explained to me why gravitas was necessary. They only made it clear that my poems were deficient without it. I'd been accepted to the program on the merit of a writing sample influenced by Frank O'Hara. Suffice to say, they knew what they were getting. But once they got me, they didn't know what to do with me. What would they have done with Frank O'Hara? I guess it's different if you're a man. I remember my professors liked a poem by a guy in my cohort about chopping down a tree. He wrote it in an old-timey voice. I wake at dawn and walk the frost-covered path, or something like that. Was it that phony voice that lent his poem gravitas, or was it just that he was a man, and that chopping was more masculine than the verbs in my poems, painting, shopping, writing, smoking, reading, cooking, asking? Those were some of the things I did in my poems, but I never chopped down a tree. And then a friend reminds me of another poem by another guy about eating a microwaved hamburger on Amtrak. The professors like that one too, she says. Where's the gravitas there, I ask. My friend says, there is none. She says, your poems were all about female friendships and relationships. To say that lacks gravitas is incredibly sexist. It seems obvious now, but when I was 24 and in the middle of it, I didn't understand. I follow my friend's insight to its disturbing conclusion. To say that poems about my life lacked gravitas is to say that my life lacked gravitas. I was writing about my life. The topics of my poems weren't gravely important, but neither was chopping wood or a hamburger. Believing that poetry about the life of a young woman lacks gravitas, believing that the life of a young woman lacks gravitas, enables a certain cognitive dissonance. 
If the lives of the women in the program aren't taken seriously, then the problem of the serial abuser who's been molesting and harassing them for decades isn't a serious problem. Thank you. I, there's so much in this poem to unpack, but to start, the way you're, you're talking about gravitas in this poem and in this book, and, and it's an, it becomes a name or a form um, arising out of this dismissive feedback um, I was interested in that choice, and I wondered how you're thinking about the word now. Um, you're speaking of the choice to talk about gravitas in the book? Yeah, to talk about gravitas and to name each poem like, <laughs> gravitas. It's own right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally. Um, that's just how I wrote it. Um, that it wasn't something I went back and did. It's like when I was writing them, I was like, gravitas one, gravitas two. Um, and I think, I don't know, this just felt like such a fully formed, coherent project in my head. Like, like I said, it had originally started as an essay. So it felt like this, this one piece of thought that I wanted to present as this unified whole. And I think that's probably uh, maybe why all of them, all of the titles start with gravitas. And I think also like, um, you know, someone actually, someone pointed this out to me. It wasn't a thought that I had, but it's like, you're kind of like making this argument for gravitas. It's like look, pieces of evidence. Yeah. It's like a prism. You're filtering your thoughts through gravitas as an object or something. Right. I mean, and you know, and another, um, a friend of mine asked me why, I called it gravitas and it's like, what else could I call it? Like this word was just like my experience like that. It sums it all up. Yeah. And it feeds into these meditations on pedagogy. Um, and, and it, it, they're largely negative experiences of the professor's pedagogy that you're having as a grad student. Mm. Um, but I, I think, I mean, presumably as an MFA student, were you teaching as part of this program too? Yeah, so um, the way it worked was that, <laughs> I get at this in one of the poems, but um, so our funding was supposedly merit-based. Um, it was a two-year program. All students taught their second year, your first year. Um, if your poetry was deemed more worthy, you didn't have to do teaching assistantships. And if it was deemed less worthy, you did. And something that um, my friends and I didn't put together until we like resuming like a couple years ago um, I'm still close with my girlfriends from grad school and we, especially during early COVID, we had these really nice regular Zooms. Um, but, and I think that was also kind of part of something that strengthened this project too. Um, but I'm getting off topic. Um, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> I think we were going to arrive at the fact that the men in the program. Yes, yes, I apologize. It wasn't until we were on one of these Zooms, this may be something that we want to cut. It wasn't until we were on one of these Zooms um, that we realized that all of us had been given teaching assistantships, which meant that all of the boys in our cohort, and I say boys because they were boys, um, were given just, you know, free rides their first year. They didn't have to do anything because their poetry had been deemed more worthy of merit and it's that complicated i mean of course that's there's a problem embedded in, in that observation 
but there's also this question of ambition and and thinking about what an MFA program is for. And I what struck what was so mind boggling to me in my MFA program was learning that there was no prestige associated with teaching, um, and a lot of professors did not seem to want to teach. <laughs> And so I wondered if this is a thing that you were thinking about with your cohort or, or how these interactions with your professors that were largely negative shaped your experiences as a teacher yourself, um, as a person with that kind of responsibility to a student. Yeah. So I think um, second year, um, I had like, so we were asked to teach comp- uh, composition and creative writing. Um, and most of us taught composition first and I had a really, really hard time with it because as I mentioned in one of these poems, I had a mental health crisis in the middle of my first semester teaching and like, I was not able to show up for my students. Like my behavior was really erratic, um, because I was sick. Um, and I don't need to complain about this because the poem does it for me, but yeah, the program was like so unsupportive like they wouldn't acknowledge that I had had a mental health crisis like the director of the teaching uh part of the MFA program would only talk about the situation in terms of like my bad behavior um it was gnarly so I I didn't and I also even if I had been well I don't think I would have liked teaching comp um I I I wasn't good at it even when I was doing well mentally it was um I didn't we were all using this uh textbook uh they say I say and it just the method of teaching how to write argumentative writing didn't even make sense to me I don't think we were trained well to do it I really hated it anyway (laughs) then we got to creative writing um and that was a really really lovely experience um I think all of the um, suffering that my professors had been putting me through and were still putting me through in my last semester of the program sort of got funneled into me putting extreme care into giving my students a really safe and supportive and just fun environment to experiment with all kinds of writing. Um, And so I really took a great deal of pleasure in creating and being in that safe environment with them um, and just, you know, listening to <laughs> what they were moved to write, um, you know, and I'm just laughing. I remember this young woman writing a really like pithy um, and kind of cutting poem about a, a girl that cheated, that her boyfriend had cheated on her with. Um <laughs> It's not, it's not like, it wasn't like my thing. It's not like my kind of poem that I normally like, but she got it published in the school newspaper and I was so proud of her. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so I, you know, in reaction to having this terrible experience made me want to like be a great teacher and that gave me a lot of pleasure. And I do want to get back into teaching in some capacity at some point um, outside of the institution. But um my professors didn't seem to like not like having to teach. Um, it seems like they did like having to teach because they liked, they liked being in charge and they liked having power and they liked telling us, you know, when we weren't good enough and choosing students to um, offer praise to. They see, I think they liked teaching because they liked being in control. So less about giving students agency like you were describing with your student and more about 
um, performing power structures. That's how it felt. Well, maybe on that same thread, let's look at Gravitas 9, Sexism in Academia. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness gracious, these teachers. (sighs) (laughs) I just... This woman, I cannot believe, I cannot believe her. Um, Let's hear this poem. Yeah. Sexism in Academia. A few years after I graduated, I found out that one of the professors who defended the abuser, enabling him to sexually assault and harass my peers, actually wrote a book about sexism in academia. I couldn't believe she wrote a book about sexism in academia. I read a review in the New York Times and I felt hurt. This professor wasn't ignorant. She knew exactly how harmful and degrading sexism is. She knew exactly how it discourages women from pursuing their studies. And yet, even with all that knowledge, she stood by and let the abuser do what he did. She stood by and practically let sexism run our grad program. And then she wrote a book about sexism in academia. So this poem... Well, formally, it's so interesting because of the way the point lands through this repetition, which um, you meant you wrote about in the earlier poem too, about how repetition was not that did not, for whatever reason, look like rigor to your poetry professors. Um, so I'm interested in the in the formal choices here from that perspective, and I also think there's so much to say and think about uh, in the possibility that making a problem academic depersonalizes it or makes it abstract and this question of ignorance and complicity um, for this professor is poignant I guess that's not really a question but those are those are thoughts that I had about this poem and I wondered um, if you might speak to that a little bit yeah I mean I do I I was like um, I like repetition I think it's a really powerful tool um, and I, I do remember being told like more than once in grad school that like why is this repetitive? But it's like, excuse me, have you ever heard a song? Have you ever heard a pop song? Have you ever heard a rap song? (laughs) Like repetition is really powerful. A chorus is powerful when you hear something and then you hear some more words, some more information, and then you hear that first thing again. And then you hear some more words and then you hear that first thing again. It keeps on gaining more meaning and you're thinking about it in different ways. And it's, repetition is really powerful and cool. <laughs> um, I, I'm very influenced um, by, like, probably song lyrics as much as I'm influenced by um, poetry, when I write poetry. Um, and don't ask me which song lyrics, because I wouldn't be able to tell you, but I, I really love all kinds of music and have a mind that is just like, oh my God, like the ska bands that I was listening to as a 12 year old, like all those lyrics are in there Um, for better or worse, taking up space. And their um, rhythms though too, that's so important. Sorry? And their rhythms too, that's important. Totally. Um, Thank you for bringing this conversation to craft, back to craft always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, the other part of that, I apologize. What was the other part of the question? Uh, I was thinking about the questions that this poem raises about... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, right, depersonalizing something. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you. (laughs) Let me tell you. It was not an academic book. It was like, you know, it was reviewed in the New York Times. It was a popular book. And it was about how this woman... I didn't read it. 
But it was about how this woman had a terrible time while trying to pursue um, an academic career in the sciences uh, because the boys she was studying with were given preferential treatment and she was treated disrespectfully, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my cat might jump in my lap. And, <laughs> um, and, you know, so like it was personal too. It was extremely personal. And my understanding of the trajectory of her life is that that's how she got into creative writing. She didn't feel like she could be in the sciences because of how she was treated as a woman. So she found solace and respite in the creative writing uh, program. And then she failed to, you know, not repeat the same harms that had so oppressed her. And that's something that I cannot forgive her for. And when I think about this whole situation, I'm struck by how I'm actually, I feel more anger towards her than I do to the actual abuser. Um, I should also say that for context, she's the same professor in the poem. He used to be much worse. Those are all things that she said to me in one meeting. <laughs> well, and I, I, yeah, and it's, it's hard because what, it's hard to know what there is to say about events like this or like interactions like this because it feels true and common. And I think anyone who's moved in academic spaces has had experiences like this. And yet the cycles persist, even if there is this awareness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you would have thought me too would have fixed it. Um but what I did think was interesting is uh, there's this conversation a little bit about like lacking language at the time, um, like words like gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And now we do have that language. But then there's this question, what does the language provide besides, I guess, a kind of structure? But mm-hmm. it, it's not quite a solution yet. Yeah, but I think that I think it, it's not a solution, but it's a huge um I don't know what the right word is. It, I mean, what it provides like emotionally and socially, I think is like a huge um, change and a huge benefit for students in the same situation. Um, I know several people who've gone to the same MFA program, despite me warning them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, it's a free ride. I'm not going to tell anyone not to do that, but I was recently talking to somebody who finished that same MFA program a few years ago. And there was just so much more ability for her and the other students to cope with what was happening because they did have the language Mm -hmm. to talk about it because our culture had just shifted enough so that those concepts were widely available. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, I kind of joke about having PTSD from the program. I don't know if it'd be like, intense enough to really uh, have that diagnosis. But, you know, it, it was traumatizing. Um, and I do think that just like having those concepts and being able to name what is happening to you and being able to talk about it with your peers because it has a name that you can articulate and communicate, you know, that means that you're not alone. And so you have some more agency and some more power. And so even if you're having the same miserable experience, um, it's not going to destroy you as much. Absolutely. Um, perhaps in a similar, uh, a similar kind of thought, 
maybe let's look at Gravitas 7, my thesis. There's mm -hmm. a relationship between recall and writing that's also an undercurrent in this book that feels relevant to what you're saying about um, language and agency. Um, but this is also a poem that gives us a pretty direct look at one of your professors, so maybe that's relevant too. Oh, God. And he was one of the better ones. Um, so one thing I reference in this poem is it's a callback to Gravitas 3, which is called Song. Um, and one thing I mentioned in that poem earlier is that <laughs> another professor, uh, I finally went to her office and said, like, okay, how do I have Gravitas? And her only answer was like, well, the first time I remember having something important enough to write about was when I had my first son. <laughs> Which was totally unhelpful and also sexist. <laughs> so um, I referenced that in this poem. Okay, so this is my thesis. Finally, two years after recalling my assault, I was starting to write about it. I hadn't shared the poems in workshops Maybe I felt too vulnerable, or maybe it felt impossible to print out a poem about my rape and carry it up the steps and past the Doric columns and inside the English department building, where the serial abuser continued to abuse my peers and my professors continued to let him do it. How could we workshop a poem about assault when there was a silent agreement that we didn't talk about assault, when there was a silent agreement that assault wasn't happening? Towards the end of a meeting with my second thesis advisor, we all had two advisors. My first was the woman who advised me to have a son. I told him I was finally writing about my rape and finally writing poems about mental illness too. I was thinking I could include some of these newer poems in my thesis, I told him. Could I send them to you? By now we were walking out of the deli where we'd had our meeting. He quickly shook his head and smiled as he held the door open for me. No, he said, I think what you have is enough. Which is devastating. Mm. But mm -hmm. I think I'm interested in, in the way that you write about the relationship between recall and writing and that the remembering itself has caused chronic pain. Um, but this project is also a project of committing the memory to the page in some capacity and, and applying language to it. I don't know creates a different kind of openness about, about the thing. Um, mm. But then it's also that the poems that did perform a difficult memory or, or look at a difficult memory are in this case excluded from the body of work is, like I said, devastating. Um, and I know mm. you, you do write elsewhere about what kind of feedback you get about the poems that mean so much to you and the poems that are influenced by... Um, the, the things that you admire in poems, the I do this, I do that of Frank O'Hara, and poems that talk to you like a friend, um, which is really lovely and I identified with. I guess I'm, this is a long-winded way of saying, what, where, where did you go from here? <laughs> or is this, is that a comment that was an example of a comment that you absorbed, set down, and then tried to just make the most of what the situation was then or was it recalled later when you set these thoughts down to poems in this book um how are you mm -hmm. thinking about about the relationship between memory and writing um i i believe i'm getting the artist's name right but i recently was reminded of a quote by the artist adrian piper 
Um, and I think I don't might get a word wrong, but basically, you know, I, I just knew that if I could get out of Ann Arbor alive, I would be okay. And that, you know, I hadn't um, come across that quote uh, at the time. I, I saw it at a art, art gallery exhibit like several years after I finished grad school, but that was kind of how I felt. And that was kind of how I felt the whole time. Um, that like, yeah, you, you called it devastating twice. And like, I really like, I felt like my whole chest seized up when you said that because it, it really was like, I had been through so much. I had, you know, I had been sexually abused as a kid. I had just recalled this. I then got stuck in this grad program in this place with winters that gave me seasonal affective disorder and these professors who like blatantly had no respect for me or my poems. Um, And then I survived this mental health crisis that was itself incredibly traumatizing, especially because I had no support from my professors. Um, And there I was, you know, persevering and like finally having the courage to write about my assault um, and to write about um, my experiences with mental illness and it, like it, I almost couldn't bring myself to to share with my professor that I I had started um, writing these intimate, vulnerable poems. You know, that's why I waited till the end of the meeting. And when he said he wouldn't look at them, I just felt, well, two things. I felt like, wow, like he must just like I don't know, hate me or like be afraid of me or just like see me and my pain and my trauma and my otherness and essentially my disabilities. Um, as somebody with mental illness and as somebody with chronic illness um, caused by sexual abuse, he must just see me and like recoil and like just feel like he doesn't even want to touch that. And so I felt very hurt. Um, and I also felt like, <laughs> like, holy shit, man. Like if that's, if that's the answer here, like I, okay, like, as soon as I get out of, or, like, you know, I know if I can get out of Ann Arbor, I'll survive, but, like, it it was just, like, wow, like, if I wasn't sure that this program didn't care about me as a person, like, that was, that was the thing. I'm pretty sure of it now, and so I just, you know, I got through it. Like, I enjoyed what I enjoyed. Um, uh, you know, as the description of the book mentions, like, I, what probably kept me and kept all of us going was this collaborative writing project that um, the women in my cohort started. Um, And I I got a lot of like life out of that and support out of that and joy out of that. And I got joy from teaching and I got, you know, joy from going to thrift stores and like (laughs) hanging out with my boyfriend and the things in my life that I could enjoy. But like, um, yeah, it was just like, okay, there's nothing for me here. And the the collaborative poems, that's absolutely something I want to talk about in a moment. But first, there is a poem called Gravitas 11. Um, Most of my friends from grad school have stopped writing poetry. And in this poem, you write, this is the exception. Usually I write prose. When I have truth to speak, I want to fucking speak it. And elsewhere in the first gravitas of the book, you write, am I writing this in verse out of spite? Or is it that whenever I'm angry, very angry prose won't do? It's messier than that. It comes out like this. You've also said that the that this project kind of came out of you as an essay or, or in this like coherent thought. Um, 
so I guess I, I'm curious about your relationship between um, truth and prose and poetry. And clearly, gravitas is a complicating factor in all of these questions. But how are you thinking about form or how has that shifted for you over these years? Yeah, oh, it's so sad what happened to me in poetry. <laughs> like, I, I really, I feel like if I'd had a good experience and a supportive experience in grad school, I'd probably just stayed a poet. <laughs> yes. Okay. So there's, um, there's, I swear there's a quote and I can't remember who said it and I should probably just like post on Twitter. Like, can somebody remind me who said this? Or maybe, you know, but there, I think there's a quote that's like, poetry is the form of art that's the closest to thought. Um, and I didn't come across that until after writing Gravitas, but I think that's the reason why it wound up um, being poetry because it was like Gravitas was just, it was this one essay that like poured out of me as I was trying to make sense of the connection between um, the professors telling me that my life wasn't worth writing about and those same professors tolerating their colleague abusing my peers. Um, And so it was just like this record of me trying to make sense of those things and thinking through them. And so it just naturally worked as poetry because poetry is a place where it's like you can kind of poems can be thinky. They can just be like, and then this, and then that makes me think of this. Like it's very associative um, and conversational. Um, I, I saw my friend um, Eric Smithen read some poems recently at a light jacket reading and his poems really reminded me of how poems can be a thought process in a beautiful way, but I digress. Um, so that I think is why it wound up, uh, presenting itself as the right mode for gravitas. When I looked back at the essay, the reason it didn't work is that it was so intellectual and removed. It was like another example of this happened during my second year when so-and-so did this. It, it just like it, I felt like I was, it, certainly essays don't have to be this way or do this, but my attempt to share these thoughts in an essay was like, so like, let me present this for you. Um, and it just, it, it really took away from the emotional resonance and the emotional impact of the whole experience. Which, and the, the, there is so much that is resonant, especially in these kitchen poems that are collaborative poems with your friends. Um, and it made me think about how in my MFA program, this was not something that I had been self-conscious about before, but I was feedback. I was given feedback that made me self-conscious about um, the tension between being domestic in like a feminine sense and being cerebral also maybe in a feminine sense and, and whether the poem can be both and whether I as a poet can be both. Um, but, but the, the, what the kitchen poems are, I think is so important to what Gravitas as a book is. <laughs> Um, and I wondered if we could read Gravitas 12 kitchen poetry and then think about, think about these poems. Um, I apologize. There's one thing that you made me think of that, um, I really want to mention. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Please. Cool. Um, <laughs> like something differentiating between like the, uh, emotional and cerebral in poetry and specifically women's poetry, something that it hasn't occurred to me until this moment. Um, but another huge influence on my writing um, as I was 
preparing to gra- preparing to go to grad school was Anne Sexton. Um, I really liked her poems, um, especially as somebody who like shares a mental illness with her. I <laughs> I think there was something where I was like, oh, I want to connect with um, a poet who also had bipolar disorder. Um, and there's there's a lot of she's a problematic fave in several ways, but um, I really liked her poems. Um, and still do. And what I think is kind of funny is like, I got to grad school, like I knowing what confessional poems were, but I didn't know that they were bad. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just, I I knew it was a kind of poetry, but um, I had no idea that they had a reputation for being like unimportant and something you should not do. Which feels like such a a workshoppy value judgment really 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 so this is kitchen poetry kitchen poetry was a phrase i heard in some class i don't remember which it meant the kind of unimportant poetry that women write about their unimportant lives it was introduced as an outmoded and sexist term of course i loved the phrase as soon as i heard it googled it when i got home from class but nothing came up just cooking blogs and writing blogs I'm Googling it again now, still nothing. Maybe I learned about it in Eastern European lit, so I translate it to Polish, search poets, I don't know how to pronounce this, search poesia kuchena, still can't find it. What I do find, eventually, is an essay by Paula Marshall about the poetry of women's kitchen talk, the gossip, rants, political analysis, and counseling she grew up overhearing in the kitchen about how kitchen conversations have the power to let you feel some measure of control over your life. What I learned in grad school, I learned in kitchens. We cooked for each other, took care of each other. We wrote hundreds of collaborative poems together, late at night, drinking wine. I think those poems saved my life. I mean, we couldn't even let ourselves think about what was going on, but our collaborative practice brought our minds together, and I felt their blood flow through me, when we finished each other's sentences, then folded the paper over and passed to the right. I don't remember whose idea it was, the collaborative poem thing, but we did it for two years, in one kitchen or another, or sitting on the floor of someone's studio apartment. It was the only good thing about grad school, but it was so good, it was almost worth it. We ate dinner, and then we started writing, folded the page to reveal only the last line, and let the next person pick up the half-formed thought and make it whole. We published a book of our collaborations, sewed it ourselves, screen-printed the covers. C.A. Conrad reviewed it in all caps, writing, Whatever magic is making this happen with these poets, let it never fucking end, please. I hold the word magic in my mouth. It feels slippery, like a lozenge that's almost dissolved. What made us bind ourselves together so tightly, bind our voices into one voice? Would we have sought refuge in collaboration if school wasn't so alienating? Conrad is right, it was magic, but what caused the magic was our oppression and our desperation to make a life outside it. Maybe quickly, let's read one of the kitchen poems that you have um, included in the appendix. Maybe the new hot thing, so we get a sense <laughs> for what these these poems look and feel like. Yeah, so th- this was a poem that we 
uh, wrote, I think there were six of us in total, but we would also often be joined by other friends. Um, and we wrote it with that, uh, that process that I described. So this is the new hot thing. No one in any room ever knows the same story. One day we will write our own communal song and sing it for selling it line by line until our names get known, our heels higher, our knees knobbier and more defined. Now knobby knees are the new hot thing and we are the kings of knobby knees, just as we are the kings of all that is cold like hardened lava and we are the kings of the foregone conclusion. Let's sign our love like a deal struck over $3 Dos Equis as Sharky's Cantina on Circuit Avenue. I spent the whole winter there, wrapped up and wondering when the desert would find me again. I love this poem in part because it feels so specific and true. The place of it is so specific and true. And so knowing that it's a sort of exquisite corpse type poem is is really, really beautiful. Um so I wondered if you could say a little bit about about these collaborative poems, and um, I think I also wanted to draw a connection to the the poem in which you're talking about editing this. It seems like you're editing this book or the Gravitas project in a Google Doc with your friends present there, um, providing commentary and providing feedback. Um, so thinking about these types of collaboration and their their influence on you and your work. Yes. Um, these, like writing these poems is one of the most incredible things I've experienced in my life. Um, we were just like such, I mean, it's the closest thing I've experienced to being in a band, right? Cause every poet wants to be a rock star. Um, I think that's a thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, our, we were just like, so like, on a wavelength with each other that the poems sound really coherent because they are really coherent. And I think these poems like kind of, I don't know, they kind of let us say things that like we weren't always saying out loud. Like, I don't know, I spent the whole winter there wrapped up and wondering when the desert would find me again. I mean, give me another like phrase to sum up like how alienating Ann Arbor was. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it was an incredible experience. Um, we we've done it a little bit again over Zoom. Um, we we were a little rusty, but we wound up writing a couple poems at least that I think were uh, had the same magic as these did. Um, we would do it by instead of folding the paper, you obviously can't do that in a Google Doc, but we would use white text to white out um, the first of the two lines that we would contribute. Um, and I just want to say for anyone listening, our book, The Feeling is Mutual, has been out of print for more than 10 years. We have a good number of additional unpublished poems and uh, some newer poems written in the last few years. I think it could be very exciting to publish a collection of the Washtenaw County Women's Poetry Collective and Castoral Society poems. <laughs> and I'm just putting it out there that that's something that's a goal for me in the next couple of years. I think that would be very exciting too. Um, but you asked me something else. Oh, thinking about um, the nature of collaboration, I guess. I mean, we've touched on a little bit the Google Doc in which Gravitas was living too. Mm -hmm. And quickly to to add to this question, I, I know that this book was also published in French translation in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I wondered about 
what that collaboration looked like and what relationship that bore with to your um, MFA community. Yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, there's not a ton to say about the last poem, which is just my friends are in me with the doc. They're reading this and giving me their feedback, um, except that um, they were and they are still very supportive and even like not literally them giving me feedback on poems, but like there's another sentence um, in another poem in the book that's italicized, which is somebody saying like, I wish we'd had the words then to talk about it. Um, And that was another phone call with a different friend from grad school. The French translation came about um, because I had gotten to be friendly with a French writer and translator or French Canadian writer and translator, Daphne B who lives in Montreal um, because she had been working at Library Drawn in Quarterly uh, when Tender Points came out, and we connected over that. She was very supportive um, of that book when it came out, um, and I became a really big fan of her writing as well. Um, she has a recent-ish book called Made Up that's really great, and um, we would just sometimes send each other writing just for fun just because we we liked each other's work um and enjoyed sharing it and when I sent her gravitas she told me like hey like just you know I've just been experimenting with like translating some of these into French like let me show you um and she really started to enjoy that project and wound up coordinating with Editions du Norois which is a French Canadian press in Montreal um, and they were interested in publishing a bilingual edition. Um, I should also say that the translation wound up um, being a collaboration between Daphne B and Marie Franklin, um, which is very cool that two translators decided to collaborate on a book that's like largely about collaboration. Absolutely. And then so to extend it into further into language or into another language feels very exciting and important for this book. Yeah, and they're doing like additions to Norwa is legit. Like I've I've been mentioned on like uh national Canadian radio programs twice. <laughs> um yeah, did an interview with one of them. So like that's that's been really fun. Yeah. Well and I wonder too like what the what in this interrogation into American academia is also relevant for French academia? It's an interesting question. Oh, yeah. Um, that's That was a big topic when I spoke with um, one of the radio interviewers. Um, and she was like, how much do you know about like what's been going on here with like scandals with this similar kind of abusive power stuff? And I was like, you know, not much, but like I imagine it's pretty similar. Um, and I found out that, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the college, but a college in Montreal is going to be teaching Gravitas this semester. Mm-hmm. So that's really exciting. That is really um, exciting. And indicative of uh, the, the fact that it seems to be a similar, unfortunately, similar situation there. So I guess to some, it's hard to wrap up um, uh, such a, wide-ranging and kind of multi-dimensional conversation about poetry and America and friendship and and collaboration. But in sum, I wondered, what of the time and experience gathered here in this book do you carry forward and how has it shifted or shaped your direction with your, your recent creative work? Yeah. Um, 
I okay. Um, I am not really a musicals person, but um, do you know the the chorus a chorus line? The chorus line. I think it's called a chorus line. Yeah, as a form. And in- no, no, uh, it's a classic musical. Oh, okay. No, I don't know that one. Um, there's a song, I believe it's called Nothing, and it's about this woman in an acting class who has this terrible teacher who just keeps on telling her that she's nothing. And ultimately, I think that I'm going to butcher this, but I think the last like verse of the song is like, um, this man is nothing. This course is nothing. If you want something, go find a better class. And when you find one, you'll be an actress. And I assure you, that's what finally came to pass. Um, it's just, I don't usually quote musicals, but that is like fully what popped into my head. And it, another example of power of repetition, because the word nothing is used throughout the song to mean a whole evolution of different ideas. But that's kind of, that was kind of the vibe. It's like, you know, I just, the, what I learned from grad school was, you know, sometimes you have to put up with some bullshit where people are telling you that you're nothing and that the way you want to write and be in the world isn't a way you can write and be. And then, you know, they don't want to read your poems about um, your trauma. And then you write tender points. Um, you know, I just, I think what I carried forward was just like, I have to be me and do my own thing and not put too much energy into thinking about criticism that I'm getting from people who don't respect me or understand me and hold space for the things that you're thinking about yeah Yeah. well I feel hopeful having had this conversation and having read this book I know that there's a lot to to not be hopeful about but um that the conversation exists and that the book is here and it's so beautiful and it's also in French that feels very hopeful oh totally yeah I'm very very stoked and um um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm working on a novel entitled Bisexual Jumpsuits Project, and that is something I'm really, really feeling a lot of hope and excitement about. Yeah. What is that? So what is that project? What does it look like? Um, yeah, so I've, I've gotten more interested in fiction um, as I've uh, kind of moved away from poetry. And it's, yeah, I set out to write something that's not about trauma, and I've succeeded in having nobody get raped, but it, it does unfortunately seem to be about depression and Holocaust trauma. <laughs> um, but it, it's also, it, it's mostly about um, kind of imposter syndrome and just being like 23 and not knowing if you're an artist or like somebody who's quit art to work in tech or somebody who has maybe just been doing art to try to make your parents happy Um, and so being an artist isn't true to you or maybe it is or and then you meet this like really hot person who wears the same jumpsuit all the time and then she invites you to go on an adventure with her and you you take that invitation Um, and specifically when I talk about imposter syndrome also the imposter syndrome that people who are bisexual (laughs) have to deal with all the time Um, of, oh, you're not queer enough, but also you're not straight enough. Um, And that's something that I think about a lot and that I don't see represented in literature very much. So I'm feeling very stoked to write a book that examines that. I feel very excited and hopeful about that. Yes. Um, Thank you so much for your time and thinking today, Amy. It's been such a gift to talk to you about this book. Yeah, this has been so nice. Um, Your questions are super thoughtful. It's been really great talking. 
And thank you to our listeners at New Books Network. Um, This has been Amy Berkowitz with Gravitas, which I encourage everyone to read and teach. This book belongs in the classroom, absolutely. Thank you.